This is Stir the Pot, a podcast all about food and the people that love it. And I'm your host, Ed Kimber. Hey guys, so yes, I am back and it only took a global pandemic and a lockdown of London to actually give me the time to do it. And I guess that's not a positive, but I'm taking my positives where I can get them these days. I'm really excited to be back recording new episodes. I've got some great guests lined up and I just wanted to do something for me that was fun for me and hopefully fun for you guys too. Something to give you to listen to every week, to give you an hour to escape and just enjoy a very friendly, upbeat conversation about something we all love, food. Um, I hope you're all doing well in this very weird new situation. Um, I found myself cooking more and more. It's the one thing keeping me sane, I think. I'm currently in the kitchen cooking dinner for my boyfriend, making something we make all the time at the moment, which is a really simple but very comforting spicy peanut noodle dish. I think comfort is something I'm going back to more and more, and ease, as much as I love cooking. Sometimes right now I just want something that's very straightforward, very simple, very quick. So if you want that recipe, that is over on my Instagram account, at the boy who bakes. Um, before we get to today's episode, I wanted to quickly talk about Patreon. I recently launched a Patreon at patreon.com forward slash the boy who bakes. Over there, there'll be exclusive recipes that will not be on my website, and there will also be bonus companion podcast episodes. So every week when I release a new episode, there'll be a bonus segment over on my Patreon, a continuation of my conversation with the guest, and it's a really fun wrap-up of that conversation. So if you want to subscribe, support me, support the podcast, you can do that at patreon.com forward slash theboywhobakes. Today's guest is a entertainment reporter turned baker, cookbook author and writer. She is based in Chicago. Her name is Shauna Siever, and we get to talk about her brand new book, Midwest Made, which is one of my favorite books of recent times. It's a beautiful book, a real deep dive into the baking of the Midwest, and it's something that I think is well worth a read. In the episode, we get to talk everything from Britney Spears shaving her head, to pie, to sourdough, to LA versus Chicago, and I really think it's a fun episode. As I say, this is a new normal, so all of these episodes are being recorded remotely, so do bear with me as I get to improve the audio quality. I think this is fine, there's no glitches, but it could be better, so I'm getting new equipment in to record that from now on. But uh, until then, I hope you enjoy the episode, and let's get to the conversation. As we always start every episode, the question is, how did food become the big thing in your life? Hmm. Not that it's a small question. You know? <laughs> it is a big question. I think most of us in food could agree that it always was sort of an undercurrent. Uh, it connected to just about everything in our lives. But as far as it becoming my career, it probably went back to about 2007. I was mostly focused on television work, actually. I was doing a lot of work as an entertainment news host and uh, reporter, correspondent, red carpet person in L.A. Where I love work. that. It doesn't I, seem like you at all. It's such a good Really? Difference. Oh, I should show you the tapes. I think that you did. Did you share a video of one of them not too long ago? I have a vision of it in my head, but I may have just made it up. I might have, because every once in a while, someone will send me a link and say, is this you? 
or I found this and I was like, yes, it was me, um, which is funny. I mean, I loved the work and I kind of thought that my goal at that time was to be uh, Juliana Rancic, who was, you know, this anchor on E! News and she was mm. very, you know, this is mid 2000s. I don't even think she has that job anymore. But I thought like, oh, that's, you know, the end goal. And so then you work towards like anything, like all these gigs and doing all these things, working for different networks. And then what happened was uh, late 2007, um, I moved to San Francisco with my husband. He got a job really suddenly, and we just kind of decided to go. And almost immediately was expecting my daughter, which kind of changed everything. And, of course, uh, got the biggest job of my career at that point back in L.A. I got a call as soon as I moved that I got this. Yeah, the, this job on this daily entertainment news show that was launching. And it was the job I thought I always wanted. And so I moved back to L.A. to move in with my best friend because I didn't wow. have an apartment anymore. No, this was like three weeks after we had moved. Also, whilst you're expecting your first child. Yes, I was kind of in that first not feeling good stage Stressful. of it. But couldn't tell anybody. And I wasn't sure. going to tell these people because I thought, oh, this is the job I always wanted. I also was like many pants size smaller, so I could like hide it at the time. <laughs> uh, doesn't, you know, wouldn't happen now. But um, yeah, I did. And I got this job and was working every day covering like, you know, that was when Britney Spears was losing her mind and chasing people with umbrellas with the shaved head, that sort of era. The heyday of celebrity news. It was Us <laughs> Weekly, yeah, Juicy Sweatpants, Paris Isn't Hilton. Isn't also around when TMZ was kind of like, was it launching then or at its height? Because I think TMZ was the first time I ever heard of them was the Britney Spears shaving her head thing. Yeah, it was like when all of the tabloid thing was taking over celebrity news. Mm. And so then all of a sudden that was my job. And I'll never forget, it was December 2007, January 2007, uh, or 2008 rather, standing outside the LA courthouse for like eight hours in the rain, totally nauseous, waiting for Britney Spears like SUV <gasps> to drop her off. And I'm like, this was what I signed up for. It was like the universe said, oh, you think this is what you want? Great. So to get back to the food thing, what had happened concurrently with that was that I had started a food blog kind of at the end of that first wave of food blogs in 2007. And so I had been doing that kind of at the same time, just as a release, just to write. I had always loved baking. And so I was mm -hmm. just sort of doing it on the side. And then once I realized that this life I thought I wanted was not what I actually wanted. I quit that job. Uh, my agent almost murdered me. I can't <laughs> believe you're doing this. And I had just finally crying. I'm pregnant. I'm sorry. I can't. And he's <gasps> like, really? Okay. So then I went back to San Francisco, uh, basically threw myself entirely into writing the blog. And because San Francisco is really kind of a media wasteland in terms of mm. television work. Yeah. So I kind of just took myself out of that equation and focused full on the blog through the time my daughter, you know, through the pregnancy until my daughter was about two years old and grew an audience from that was really um, 
kind of gaining traction in terms of web traffic and then really organically met a book editor through a friend of mine who said, you know, I, I like your voice. I kind of like the way you approach baking, make it really accessible. Like, have you ever mm. thought about writing a book? And I was like, well, of course I thought about it, but you know, how do you even do that? And then, um, I got that opportunity and that like first book was a little tiny single marshmallows. Book. Marshmallow Madness, 50 marshmallow recipes. I um, randomly came across it on Amazon when I was doing my very detailed research for this podcast. Yes, yes. And I came across the French edition and it's Guimauve oh, yes. and Marshmallow. And I was confused because isn't Guimauve French for marshmallow? It is. Anyway, so it's marshmallow and marshmallow, which I thought <laughs> I was adorable. It. I thought there was They're something very great. sweet about that. And it is, it's a funny little book and it has a puffy, well, the American and the German translation, one of the other one, uh, the Czech one are all have mm. puffy covers, but it's, it's just a fun little book. And it was something that allowed me to get my feet wet in terms of writing recipes professionally and kind of learning mm. the craft of making a book. And I went, whoa, this is what I like. Like, yeah. cause you know, it's writing, but it's also a lot of problem solving. And yeah. I've always styled all my own food for the photos. And so it's, it's really neat. It's more like a scrapbook than it is just writing recipes. You know, you're putting all these pieces together. Yeah, I think especially when you have that kind of level of, um, not control, but when you're involved to it with it to such a degree where it's not just recipe development and you're not just passing it on to someone else, but you're, you know, mm-hmm. crafting it for a shoot, it becomes this really personal project that you throw everything into. And I think it's, it's the most creative I've ever felt and the most creatively satisfied I've ever felt. So I can totally see how you do that first smaller book and just get hooked. Yeah. I mean, I had no idea that it was the process that was going to pull me in. The, the oh, making it's the best of the project. Yeah. yeah. And I do love the, you know, I mostly love unless something's really going wrong and you cannot crack the code of a recipe. It's frustrating. Um, mm. But I love all the different aspects of it. And so that was just a, you know, a lucky opportunity. And I had majored in journalism. I'd been a writer my entire life. Even when I was <laughs> waiting for Britney Spears, I was you know, <laughs> kind of producing segments, writing all my own yeah, yeah, yeah. stuff for that. So writing had always been an enormous part of my life. And this was just a way that I never thought I was going to be able to use it. And so after that first book, things really started rolling. And then oddly enough, my television experience really helped because, you know, when you're doing a book, you've got to do interviews and go on mm-hmm. TV. And that to me was like the easy, easy. Yeah. part. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, kind of just went from there. And then this last book, Midwest Made, was probably the greatest opportunity I've had to like really be myself. I feel like that's my heart in between two covers. This isn't I, like a single subject situation. This is, yeah. I, I was really afforded the opportunity to do that. Super grateful for that. I I think I said this to you at the time that it really is, I think it's a wonderful book. And I think it really shows the age of the breadth of the content of, of what it's covering, which is fascinating, but also it really shows off your ability and kind of how you approach things and it's much more personal i think than the other books just by the nature of what it is naturally but also because it's definitely your biggest book 
uh, so far so you have the space to play with it and i want to talk about the book in a little bit but the first thing i want to do is if that's how you got into food as a job where did that come from like what was your childhood food like was it were you surrounded by did you have that kind of cliche food writer thing where you know you were baking with your grandma which is fine because that's what I did so I'm always fascinated because sometimes you have that thing where food writers they like I hated food I didn't like it and that's why I got into it so I'm always intrigued where it comes from I think it was mostly just that I had a very big, loud, extended family. I, my mother's side of the family, we all lived, you know, just a few minutes from one another. I spent a lot of time with my grandparents. Um, my grandfather, who um, his father was Greek and his mother was Sicilian. And then on my grandmother's side had a lot of, you know, European and Eastern European influences. Um, and so they both sort of cooked what they had grown up eating. And so mm. it made for a really eclectic uh, dinner, you know, sometimes um, between what my grandfather loved and he was a gardener and uh, made, you know, he, he was getting all the good olive oil and the really strong cheeses <laughs> and stuff and knew all the guys that could get him those things at a time where people mm. weren't, you know, early early 80s in the Midwest, who even was thinking about olive oil. I'm not going to make jokes about the Midwest. (laughs) (laughs) No, and you know what? It's funny. I mean, I know we're going to talk about the book later, but I think that that sort of really um, shaped my experience of the Midwest in a much different way than maybe people that grew up on everything being canned or boxed. Uh, Certainly there was some of that. I mean, my grandmother had six kids and when convenience foods entered the picture, she completely embraced that. Mm. And so we really had a mix of, of, of those things and appreciation for things that take all day to cook and then things that are, that are quick. And, you know, it was, it was both of those things. It also seems to me like your kind of family situation really represents what the Midwest is in terms of its populace. Like the thing that surprised me as someone who doesn't really know that much about the Midwest, particularly, I've been to Chicago once. I have been to Minneapolis. Minneapolis, yeah, I've been to Minneapolis. Mm-hmm. And I think I met you in both places. I think I yes. saw you. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I don't know that much about it. So when I read the book, the thing that struck me most was how much the food obviously has been shaped by its immigration, but just how much immigration and how many different communities and cultures are represented in the Midwest and how it's become this real mix of really interesting food and how the Midwest has kind of taken it to its heart and kind Mm -hmm. of put its own stamp on it. And it feels like your family was like a small version of that in that you're from everywhere. Yeah, I'm a Midwestern mutt. (laughs) All of it. Um, and I remember growing up and thinking, oh, I wish I was one of those, you know, I could just say I'm 100% mm. Italian or whatever. But uh, now I realize that there's a reason for that, because now mm. I've been able to write this book that showcases all these different things. And I was able to meet a lot of people along the way that I could identify with, a surprising yeah. number of people, because because I've had that recipe or tried that food or met someone just like them. And so mm. I've really grown to see that eclectic background as a a gift in the sense of researching this book and then meeting people as a result of, of writing the book, I've been able to relate to lots of different folks. Um, but it's very true that I think the immigrant influences in the Midwest are so deeply embedded that it mm. it's just part of it. It's just almost sort of disappears. It's uh, And although 
that is part of it. On the flip side of that, there are lots of towns in the Midwest that are just strongly German or um, this pocket in the southern tip of Door County, Wisconsin, where because we go up there every summer that is has the largest Belgian American population and <laughs> in the cut like who knew? <laughs> um, and there's there's like a Belgian, you know, the festival every August. And um, it's just fascinating. Like, who knew? Mm. Um, and then, you know, generations tend to stay, all that's changed a lot, but, but the Midwest is, um, very much values tradition and family mm. and keeping those things alive. And so as much as there are some of them, and I was one of those people who couldn't wait to get out for a while mm. and move to the West coast for 13 years, like to come back and go, wow, that's a really amazing thing. This sense of home and keeping that alive that not a lot of places in the country still have. What was it that made you want to, you know, go to LA? Because it seems like the most polar opposite sort of place compared to, you know, that homely, family orientated Midwest to, you know, glitz and glamour of Hollywood in LA, especially as someone who ended up working as a celebrity reporter. What was it that made you want to leave? Well, um, I think well to go a little before the uh, entertainment news. I know this is not a this is your life type interview. Uh, no, go for it. But I grew up. I grew up acting. I grew up like a theater kid and um, had an agent in from the time I was like in my teens and auditioned for lots of different things and TV shows and movies and whatnot. And so I had been out to LA a few times for that reason throughout high school and college and studied a lot of theater in college. So even though my major was journalism, the minor was basically theater and I loved performing and I loved acting. And so that was a huge passion of mine. And I always thought I would just, I'd go and give it a shot, you know, while I was still young and I had representation out there and stuff. So that's what brought me out there initially was to pursue acting. And then, um, then, you know, nonfiction television really started to to come up and you were seeing like hosting TV shows was a job. And mm. all of a sudden my journalism degree put me to the front of a very long list of people to have that ability to speak on camera and be improvisational and do interviews. And so that's how that pivot happened. How did you find your kind of food life in L.A.? How different was it to what you were experiencing in uh, the Midwest? Were you cooking whilst you were there or were you just kind of eating out all the time? I was cooking a lot. You know, I got married um, really young. My husband and I met in college and got married pretty soon after that. And I really fully embraced the domestic life and wanting because I'd grown up around so many great cooks. That was something to me that was a a really valuable, wonderful thing. I've never shied away from it. So yeah, I've always, I've always loved to cook. And of course, you know, LA um, has grown a lot as a food town Mm. in that time. I mean, you look at LA now versus where it was in 2003 when we moved there, it's, it's night and day, you know, Um, specifically Venice. We lived in the Venice, Santa Monica area, and that's just crazy now. Um, So it's grown a lot. But I think that part of my growing interest in food in LA really uh, aligned with the the growing of restaurants and the food scene in LA. Mm. I think those two things happened kind of at the same time. Um, While that was also growing, was there a sense for you that you were trying to recreate things that you missed from home? So were you kind of cooking those things to give yourself that comfort or was it just, I'm really excited by what's happening in restaurants and you know the growing LA food scene and let, let's join up with that kind of thing? Or was it a mix of those? 
Sure. It was a little bit of both. In fact, when I was blogging and I lived in LA, I remember uh, asking my grandmother, who I talk about a lot in the book, to send me some of what she thought were quintessential Midwestern recipes that I could <laughs> write about for the blog. And she actually wrote them out on little index cards. There's a picture of some of them in the book, yeah. actually, in her. She had the best handwriting. And um, she sent me a few of those and said, I made a list and I'll write the rest because, of course, she wrote them out and sent them in the regular okay. mail, you know. Yeah. Uh, and then after she passed, which was a year before we moved back to Chicago, she passed in 20 fall, 2015 or 2014. And then, um, I got her recipe folder as the thing that I kind of wanted of hers as everyone's divvying things up and it's terrible, yeah. but I got the folder and in the recipe folder was the list that she had written out, Aww. but had never sent all the index cards, right? And <laughs> she so got bored of all the writing. Right, it's hard to write all those out. And so I actually, I was like, oh my God, this is it. This is my 10 commandments of how I'm going to write this book. And almost all of them are in the book. And I stuck Amazing. it up next to my desk. And that was what I, every time I went, why did I say I would write this book? Which happens every time you write a book yeah. you hit that point. And it's like, oh, okay, don't, this is your North Star. It's fine. So That's a really nice way of, having a starting point for a book to have something so personal and so connected did that uh, did the picture of the index card make it into the book do you actually have a picture of that list uh not of the list itself but i have a few of i think a couple of the index cards are in a photo that has yeah, a bunch of yeah. recipe clippings yeah what recipes were on the list can you remember um oh gosh do i still have it i've got it somewhere over here it's not while you're finding it, I will say I have made the espresso revel bars, and I cannot yes. tell if you are listening to this and you need a recipe to make right now. Make the revel bars; they are so good. It's like an oatmeal cookie base with like an espresso ganache, and it's like a cross between a cookie and a blondie, and they are heaven, 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 heaven. So that was so great when you shared that. Everybody was like. Telling me about your recipe you made. No, it's so funny. People are like, oh, I love your recipe. And I'm like, you didn't read it then? You were so great about, about giving the credit, which not everybody does. It's great. Yeah. But I mean, that meant so much to me because I know you're such a great baker. So to hear you say that is is amazing. Um, the Revel Bars were not on her list, but I know it was the, uh, the oatmeal cookies that are in the book. Yeah. Mrs. Braun's oatmeal cookies, um, I think the potato chip shortbread, which I then riffed on. Uh, a lot of them were things that, you know, old school recipes of all sorts tend to have not enough salt, but way too much sugar. Uh, they're kind of blander than they could be. And mm. so that's, and I know you do a lot of that too, where you're like fine tuning it to make it more yeah modern and salty sweet or a slightly different chocolate or whatever it is so a lot of that stuff was all changed up and that was part of the fun fun of it i think for me one of the really fun parts is that kind of constant playing with an idea and i think where those ideas come from can be really interesting so i think you play on a lot of what i have done in the past where it's not nostalgia and not playing on things that you remember as a child and it's specifically that that's what you've done with this book is that it is like a love letter to what you grew up with, the environment you live in, and the kind of heritage of those amazing recipes yeah. that are almost like, the, you know, that kind of idea of an heirloom recipe. It feels like this is a book yeah. inspired by that idea. 
And it's funny to hear you use the word heirloom because I think that was that was something very early on. It probably was even in the book proposal that it was like <laughs> a a modern a modern heirloom recipe collection. Something that um, you know, not to get too hokey about it, but certainly when I moved back to this place that I'm from with my two little kids that I mm. never thought would be. I never thought I would raise them in the Midwest, um, and here we are. And how am I going to create a collection of recipes that's a snapshot of what this place is about and how special it is so that um, they never feel like they have to leave it to appreciate it, mm. like the way that I did? I think that's, it is definitely, to me, it really reflects that because it isn't just you know those classic recipes as they are because that would be interesting, but I don't think it would be as appealing to as many people because, you know, they're the things that a certain group of people grew up with and it's not necessarily what everyone else around the world might want to make. So I think you did a really amazing job of taking those ideas, representing them as clearly as you could, but then also doing really interesting, fun things with them to make them more modern or to our current palette or just more exciting because we're all saturated by food media. So I think it definitely does make it, it's not, kind of one of those cookbooks that you know those cookbooks that have the, the the plasticky cover and you find them at the local gift shop on the highway and it's like oh this is the chicago cookbook and it's kind of like they're a great historical document but they're not going to get people in the kitchen cooking and i think your book definitely has that appeal of oh my god i want to make that it looks so delicious and i think that comes from that real mix of things so Thank i do you. really like it the one thing i wanted to ask was you've written now four cookbooks you wrote one on um, marshmallows, as we've said, one on uh, vanilla, mm -hmm. um, and then one on sugar alternatives, real real sweets. I'm going to forget. I'm going to get a name wrong. Real sweet. That's right. Uh, mm -hmm. So the thing that was interesting about those three books is they're all single subject books. Now, uh, kind of taking the curtain away a little bit, uh, it, we, we know it's easier to sell often single subject cookbooks because publishers understand them. They make sense to them. What was the process with Midwest Made? Was there a real appetite for that subject or were publishers more reticent about the idea of doing something hyper-local or not hyper-local because the Midwest is massive, but very specific? Did they see the appeal in it or did you have to do some convincing that it was worthwhile of a book just on its own? Well, you do have to do some convincing. That's what a book proposal is, right? Like you're <laughs> you're trying to convince somebody. So I think the thing that I did with, in crafting this proposal, first of all, I took about six months to write the proposal. And I mean, I really worked on it. It was, mm -hmm. it was research. I think it was a really good balance of, not toot my own horn, but I do think it was a really good balance of my personal uh, story woven in with, okay, how am I going to make this not just sound like a bunch of somebody's blog posts about personal stories about recipes? And so with that, I tried to incorporate a lot of food history, um, and that's where the immigrant history and those sort of origins sort of come into it. So I really wanted to create a full circle experience of, of uh, the Midwest for people, because I think that you're right. I think one of the problems with trying to take on a region, especially like the Midwest, which is so massive, is that mm. 
even people in the Midwest, I and I knew this was going to happen, so I wrote it in the introduction. And whether or not these people <laughs> read the introduction is, yeah. But I tried. They never to, read the introduction. They never read the introduction, but I can say it's in there. And <laughs> yeah. one of those things is that I am a Great Lakes snob. I am Chicago area, yeah. born and raised. This is the hub of my Midwestern experience. Yeah. Someone who is from way up north in Minnesota that they practically live in Canada. That's a different Midwest. Mm. St. Louis, do we count it? Uh, I guess we do, but I mean, it, you know what I mean? It's Everyone from different. St. Louis is coming from you now. Yeah, right. But even people in St. Louis are like, oh, you know, the Southern influence is there or uh, Ohio so close to Kentucky. I mean, you can't deny that the people mm. on the, you know, the perimeter, if you want to call it that, are, it's much different than the mm. urban centers. And so trying to just acknowledge that this is my Midwestern experience and, yeah. Um, with that, I'm going to try and put plenty of factual information in there as well to mm -hmm. kind of make people go, huh, I didn't even know that. And I'm from here, you know, and so yeah. trying to make it um, really a full, like I said, a full cir circle experience. And then when it comes to selling any cookbook, you know, you try and just think about how is it going to be different? And I was so inspired by the idea of doing this book. And I think for me, if you talk about pulling back the curtain, I mean, you just know when you know that it's that it's an idea that can take you the long haul that yeah. it takes to write a book. And I was just so excited by the idea. And then when I found that there really has never been a book no. uh, like this about Midwestern baking, there's great books on Midwestern food, savory cooking with a little bit of sweets in the end, but not one that took the deep dive. And the thing about baking that's so interesting is, especially from the immigrant influence aspect, is you get so many cool, diff mm -hmm. wildly different things in the area of baking. Um and fewer ingredients that are going to weird people out. So <laughs> even if it's a really unique, uh, you know, yeah. say rye bread you've never tried, you're like, oh, it seems a little less risky than like a, you know, preserved fish, you know, where you're just like, I don't know if I want to, you know. I also think it really feels like a book. You know, the book came out in October of last year, and it really feels like a book that we would use right now in that a lot of the recipes have a ton of kind of automatic comfort built into them. But also they, a lot of them come from a time where we didn't have, you know, amazing ingredients of, you know, imported from everywhere. Mm -hmm. And so they're quite humble in a lot of them. And I think there's something really approachable about a lot of the recipes in there that I think, you know, regardless of your connection to the Midwest, I think there is so much in there for people who just, you know, aren't, you know, bakers who bake all the time, but are just, you know, occasionally pop into the kitchen. I think it's a very approachable book but for those who don't know anything about the midwest what would be a a baked good a sweet that you would say sums up the midwest in some form it doesn't have to be it's like the quintessential midwest bake or just something that you think really signifies midwest baking yeah um i think i just have to say pie as a category i'm uh, always called the pie Pie. See, exactly. I'm always down for pie. People are always. like, always. Um, this was one of the conversations I had early on that really made me feel like I had a book. Um, and there is a pie chapter. There is a bars chapter, like a full chapter on bar cookies. Um, That's and a book that I need always. Bars. A hundred percent. And well, yes, you did. It's coming, <laughs> I mean, right? it's coming in June. Yeah. You're doing it. 
Um, we call it a nine by 13, not a 10, yeah. but that's okay. Um, yeah, there was a lot of discussions about that. I wanted to call it a pan and they were like, no, it's a 10. I'm like, mm, not to Americans. Anyway. I love it. No, it. I'm so excited for that book. Um, so both of those things are, they're shareable. It, there's a simplicity in putting something in one pan. Um, the pie in itself, the foundation of it is pantry staples. It does not get any simpler yeah. than a pie crust in terms of something magnificent made from very few ingredients. Mm. You have grains, which is a staple of the heartland. You have butter and we have some of the best dairy around here. You know, um, it's a wonderful showcase for seasonal fruits, which the Midwest is very much, if, especially if you're talking about baking, that's something that runs on seasons. I mean, of course, now we can get frozen fruits and all of that kind of stuff, yeah. except for rhubarb. I mean, we can't get forced rhubarb here like you guys. No, it's depressing. Lucky. I was once told, um, I get told every time I write a cookbook, I try and get some rhubarb in there. Yeah. And every single time I get told by an editor Americans can't buy rhubarb, and I have to explain <laughs> it's not true. It's a different season, different type, but you can. I was also once told yeah. for my next book that Americans can't buy blackberries. Oh, what? That is a lie. <laughs> uh huh. That's I had to a give, lie. I had to provide evidential proof <laughs> that you could oh buy blackberries. You can't. I mean, they're expensive <laughs> most of the time. But sure. that's like uh, in the, in Midwest made. I have a black raspberry ice cream. Black raspberries mm. are super rare, and it's kind of super. something like you might have that growing in your backyard, but you didn't put yeah. it there. It just showed up there, and gosh, <laughs> it's delicious. And it's a tiny like rhubarb. It's just that little tiny window. And yeah. you know, if you have a year where yours come up, it's like it's so exciting. Um, and you know, that was one of those things where, of course, you can replace it with something else. But the point is, is that ingredient tells a story about yeah, exactly the region. So, you know, I think, uh, you know, and going back to pie. So basically, that's the, always, the back seasonal, <laughs> always back to pie is the seasonal aspect of it, you know, and um, it is shareable. You cannot walk with a slice of pie. You need to sit at a table with a fork yeah. probably with somebody else with you and you're talking and you're eating pie. I mean, that to me is, it's the, that's why it's the quintessential Midwestern food. It just represents a lot of the different values of the Midwest. And what would be your favorite pie to make today? Mm. If you were making a pie right now, what would you fill it with? Oh, well, I mean, right now, like if it wasn't March or... <laughs> oh, I don't know. I love, I love the big bold blueberry pie recipe yeah. in the book. I mean, a blueberry pie with a butter crust uh, is so good. Eat. It's so good. And I, with my fruit pies, I always like to pre-cook part of the filling. Mm -hmm. That's kind of my tip to kind of reduce the liquid and intensify the flavor yeah. of whatever fruit it is. Um, the cherry slab pie I love. I love to use a little five spice powder with uh, cherry and even oh. sometimes apple, but five spice powder just gives it this. I always say it tastes like a cherry Jolly Rancher. Do you guys have Jolly Ranchers out there? No, I do mean because cherry is often paired with that kind of like spice of like cinnamon, but not so it's identifiable as cinnamon, but it gives that kind of like intensifies the yeah. flavor. Very, you know, that sounds delicious. And it's the star anise that is yeah. the thing that makes it, you know, really special. Um, so yeah, I would probably do, do some of that, um, or a French silk pie. I've love, everyone's like, oh, that's so eighties. I can't <laughs> believe you brought it. And I'm like, yes, exactly. It is very eighties. And it was such a huge part of my upbringing. We had this 
well, it still exists, this restaurant called Baker Square, that they had this insane French soap pie that was at every family gathering. But if you make it from scratch, it's really good. So I don't think French soap pie ever was really known here. Like, it's obviously, the internet has changed things, so people have heard of it, but it's not one of those things that we have like a touchstone for. So mm -hmm. if you were describing what a French soap pie was, A, I need you to describe it, and B, I need you to convince me, because I've never, I've seen pictures of them. I've never yeah. eaten one. And every time oh. I see it, I'm like, I don't think it looks that good. So <laughs> what is it that... <laughs> makes it so delicious because I know people that are fanatical about it so yeah. I'm just I get asked someone asked me about my book oh is there a French soap pie and I was like um no it's so funny what people will ask you for You're like oh, really oh. that's what you want people have been like <laughs> why isn't there a banana cream pie I'm like well there's not a direct line to it being a midwestern recipe so yeah. but I can appreciate the taste for it um <laughs> French soap pie it's basically like chocolate mousse in a pie shell with whipped cream on top Okay, I don't know. Yeah, what's the problem? <laughs> That's so <laughs> this, this is a textural thing. It just looks unusual to me. So I don't. I yeah, don't know it why. is. It's like a sliceable chocolate mousse uh, in a pie shell, and you can't be. Um, you know, the key with that is to use really super cold eggs, and you're kind of mm -hmm. almost kind of making a a ganache, and you're very slowly whipping the eggs into it. Um, mm -hmm. In the recipe, I say keep the eggs in the fridge and you actually pull them out one at a time as they beat oh, really? like five minutes of beating time for each egg. And it turns into, it goes more and more cloud-like. That's what's kind of fun making it. It just billows, billows, billows. So I, I think the fun with most, I mean, I have the sweetest tooth going, but I think sometimes the making is almost more fun than the eating. And I think there's yeah. something really, when you have those recipes that are really process orientated or, there is some form of transformation. I find those are the best recipes to kind of just enjoy the process of making. Um, there is something I want to talk to you about process and uh, baking, uh, because we both currently have a shared obsession with sourdough. Yes, sir. But before we get to that, I wanted to ask something. I read in an interview you did about a rule you have with recipe development for a book. It was an interview many years ago, so it may not be true anymore. Um, but it was a four attempt rule that if you can't get a recipe for a book done within four attempts, you stop. Is that still something you do? It is. It is. I mean, if it's something I'm really obsessed with, I may push it to six. Mm -hmm. But I think I also have I'm very Midwestern in that I have a really hard time, like just wasting food. Yeah. And right. I have that perfectionist streak where I don't really want to serve it unless it's right. right. Um when I was living in California and making my cookbooks, we had a wonderful compost program. So that was felt a little less, <laughs> a little less, at least I'm composting. Um, but I think it's, the thing about that is that if I can, if it takes that long for me to do it, I feel like what I'm doing is sort of saving the reader from some frustration. Mm -hmm. Because if the margin of error is that slim, that it just feels to me like a recipe that I wouldn't publish. And mm -hmm. if I do publish something that is very dependent upon, like keeping the eggs fridge cold until the moment you use them for a French soap pie, that's yeah. something that's easy to explain to people. But mm -hmm. I'm not the type of recipe developer that's going to say, your eggs need to be 38 degrees and use a <laughs> thermometer. I'm never going to do it ever. <laughs> 
And if well, you put that in your recipe, I can't, there's a thing in my brain that kind of goes off. Now, doesn't mean I don't respect those people and the work that they do. I'm I, saying, yeah. yeah. So I think that really differentiates who you're writing for, though. And I think that's a really important thing because exactly. I think, you know, that there will be the people who will happily read a recipe with percentages of this, degrees of that. And then there'll be the people who just want, you're going to do this, you're going to do that, you're going to put it in the oven. Yeah. And I think those audiences will connect at some point, but sometimes they are so far apart. And that, I think, brings us to sourdough. <laughs> <laughs> because it, I've been doing this thing online whilst we're all in you know, quarantine to try and encourage people to make sourdough. So and good. I've loved it. It's been really fun, but it's never been something that I have ever really dedicated a lot of time to doing with the public, per se. And I've realized that a lot of my audience isn't the sort of baker that wants that level of detail because the kind of difficulty of understanding sourdough versus understanding, say, a brownie recipe, I think is a very different mindset. Mm -hmm. So I don't know where I was going with that. Basically, what I was going to say is <laughs> where did your obsession with sourdough come from? Because you started seemingly making it not that long ago, and you're turning out loaves that look incredible. Thanks, Ed. Um, I will say I started New Year's Day. Uh, people might start an exercise routine or something, <laughs> and I said, nope. I'm gonna... I already work out pretty regularly. So what's left? Um, <laughs> I'll do a sourdough starter. And so that's what I did on New Year's Day. And I, now I feel like very ahead of the game, even though now I can't get flour. But um, I, I found it so fascinating that, and I think that this was something that I needed to do after so many years of working on this book and thinking about recipes that have a lot of ingredients in them. Um, the thing that's endlessly fascinating to me is that a great loaf of sourdough is nothing more than flour, water, and salt. How freaking cool is that? And I'm I like, how does it work? And so I think I was in a headspace where I was like, I'm just going to figure this out. And then one day I went, wait a minute, this is not baking. I'm a yeast farmer. <laughs> wait a minute and i feel Honestly, like you that's what you are. so you really have to change hats you have yeah. to go this is so outside my way of understanding okay this ingredient's going to do this for me and this ingredient is and um i think one of the great things about sourdough also that i figured out is that these invisible ingredients are actually time and temperature right so, uh, the biggest important thing, biggest important, the most important thing. And it's not written, right? So people look at this stuff and they're like, well, I have my starter and I have this much flour and why isn't it working? And it's like, yeah. so there's a lot more sort of troubleshooting that needs to happen. Oh, yeah. And I think something that, that you obviously have noticed and would have seen how much more dramatic it was if I posted every terrible Frisbee <laughs> I made. I was like, no one needs to see more Frisbees of <laughs> mine. Horrible. Um, it, it's like a switch goes off one day. It, yeah. And I really did. I had no work. Well, I was supposed to have a lot of work this spring, but we don't anymore, do we? It's all disappeared. But oh, January and the first part of February, we're going to be really slow. So I said, you know what? I'm just going to do my own sort of masterclass about sourdough and I'm going to figure this out. Literally made bread every day, every single day. And most of it was really bad. 
do you find it meditative? Because it's so different to what you already do. Absolutely. Yeah. Meditative and feeling it was a wonderful exercise in giving up to this substance, just yeah. giving yourself over. And the dough tells you when it's ready, not the other way around. Yeah, I think and that's the biggest thing you can give as advice is, A, you're not in control. It will all be down to when the bread is ready and you can't rush things. Yeah. And if you're expecting to be able to just go, I've been using this analogy of people thinking that, say like with a cake, you have one plus one equals two. Yep. But with sourdough, it's one plus one equals X, Y, Z. You know, it, it has a life of its own. Um, but I, I think you're completely right. I think when you get that switch, it just feels like, oh, okay, I, I now know what I'm doing. And it takes a few loaves. It takes a while till you get there. But what would be, to people listening who have been on this new sourdough journey, what would you say would be your biggest piece of advice as just a kind of like encouragement or technical advice, whatever you want it to be? Yeah. First, I would say, don't listen to all of these people that are like, it takes seven days to get a sourdough starter. No, it doesn't. That's crap. Mine took a month before I started. Sorry. <laughs> it took a month before yeah. I was really getting decent bread. And not great bread, just decent bread. And that's yeah. because I started in January, where we it was really cold here. Oh, yeah. And... um. So everything goes out the window. Now, I, I don't even remember who it was. I got so much great advice from like random people on Instagram. Yeah. And I think someone said, I started my sourdough starter in the summer and it was so much easier. And I think that that's yeah. just part of it. And like, just keep going. I'm like, that's a really good point. So then what I did, because <sighs> the ingredients are so cheap, why not spend lots of money on the equipment to do this really simple uh. thing? ridiculous. I went ahead and I got myself a proofing box. Now I should say that our house is more than a hundred years old. And um, even though I recently had the kitchen redone, it's still drafty. And if you have stone countertops, they're really cold. And I found that I couldn't regulate the temperature enough to get a consistent result. So I got this proofing box thing that folds down flat. It's an amazing little gadget. Same one. Yeah, it's great. And then overnight, I was like, okay, that at least put a little more consistency in my thing. Because I was trying to keep my starter on the radiator, and then the radiator would turn on and off throughout the day. And that's not good either. Yeah. Um, so that really changed the game for me in doing the starter in cold weather was the proofing box, I think. Um, but I would just say, give yourself at least a month for a starter if you're going right from flour and water, you know, yeah. and just save yourself the heartache of like people on day three, nothing's happening. It's like, well, oh, that's stressful to me because I have three million emails saying it's day three, nothing's happening, what's going on? I'm we like, need to do a split screen, and I will be the Midwestern voice of reason. <laughs> Listen, Karen, you're four days in, please. Don't. I know you're used to telling people what to do in HR, but you're at home now with your sir. This isn't gonna work. Um, no, no offense to people named Karen. They've had a hard couple of years. The Karens. That's not fair. <laughs> but yeah, the temperature uh, consistency made all the difference for me. And I found that then all of the things I was worried about was, oh, is my tap water have too much chlorine, or does my 
that yeah. doesn't matter as much as the well, uh, temperature. The important thing is consistent temperature and perseverance. It takes mm-hmm. time. Once you get it, you get it. But that will take experience of knowing how your kitchen works and all those things. So I am completely in agreement with you. Yeah. So we're going to get to our second segment, which is meant to give a slight window into your, I don't know, culinary approach or just your tastes. So it's called the shopping list. And maybe there'll be a jingle. Who knows? When you <gasps> we're back to this for the first time in a year or so, maybe there'll be a jingle. Oh, if my so, God. I'm going to hear it now. No, maybe there wasn't. I don't know. So it's the shopping list, and so it's a fairly rapid-fire round. You can elaborate if you want. It's just a few things that I need you to make a decision on. So, vanilla or cinnamon? Oh, God. <laughs> vanilla. I mean, you did write a book on vanilla, so... I did, and although I love cinnamon, uh, especially Vietnamese cinnamon, I am the gospel of the Vietnamese cinnamon. I love it so much. There are so many types of vanilla that they're really fun to play with, the flavor profiles, yeah. But your American cinnamon's meant to be on everything, right? (laughs) Right, just animal cinnamon. Exactly. Um, (laughs) Pie or cake? I think I've become a pie person. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think I became more of a pie person as I've grown older, and I'm not sure why. I don't because it's not about ease. Maybe it's about sweetness because mm-hmm. pies definitely aren't as intensely sweet. So maybe it's that. But I love pie. Yes, and I think that you hit it. That was one of the things I was thinking earlier, and I didn't say it that the the contrast of a sweet, sweet, sweeter filling with a little bit mm-hmm. of acid, like a fruit pie filling with that salty flaky crust it is such a perfectly balanced dessert i completely agree i think there's something that almost savory note of a pie crust with that filling is just magical yes Um, dark brown muscovado sugar or maple syrup dark brown muscovado sugar is the best thing you are so lucky that you can buy that just anywhere so I have this theory, and I need to figure it out. I need to next time I'm in the states, I'm buying all of the sugar. So I was watching. Um, no, I made Bon Appetit's um, brown butter chocolate chip cookie, the one with toffee, and the one that everyone makes. And it's um, Rick Martinez's recipe, and I made it, and it's a great cookie. But it had when I made it here, it had such a strong molasses flavor, and I think my theory is that. U.S. versus U.K. brown sugars are not quite the same. And I think all our sugars tend to be darker. So even if they're both called the same thing, so like U.S. light brown, light brown muscovado, our versions of the same thing are just like 25 to 50% darker. Um, And so I need to have a play with them because I'm I'm, I'm getting nerdy, but I'm just intrigued by that difference. No, you're absolutely right. No one else will, but it's just me. (laughs) No, you're so right. And I, because I'm such a fan of Muscovado sugar, because I put a lot of it in Real Sweet, which is when Mm. I started first playing with it. And I'm always tempted to swap out dark brown sugar in all kinds of recipes with dark Muscovado. Mm. But the more you work with it, you realize it's also so much higher. It's so much more acidic because it has so Mm. much more like real molasses in it even though you can swap it you got to be aware that it may come out of the oven a little different than you think a hundred percent um brownie or blondie what time of the month is it ed (laughs) what do we need Uh, i'm just kidding um 
gosh, you know, some days if it's a brownie, that's all that it's going to. And I love in the book, my Wednesday night brownies are just like the perfect brownie to me. It's almost kind of like making a box mix brownie, but, but from scratch and they're really easy. So I make those a lot, but also in the book, the caramel canvas blondies are really, really, whenever I give those to people, they're just such a great party trick because they look so plain, but have so much flavor because they have tons of butter and brown sugar and regular salt and flaky salt that I almost use as like an add-in. So I stir it into the batter. I don't put it on top. So you get like little sparks of salt. Yeah. So that's a, it's going to have to be a draw. Sorry. (laughs) That's That's allowed. Um, Chicago or California or LA? Oh God. You know, my son actually just, cause I'm with my kids a lot right now. <laughs> my, oh man. My son <laughs> who's seven always poses a lot of these questions to me. And he goes, if you could go anywhere in the world right now, where would you go? And oh. I said, I'd go to Santa Monica. I mean, my years in Santa Monica were just some of the happiest. I was there recently for doing stuff for the book and, it just feels like such a breath of fresh air. It's just such mm. an idyllic, beautiful place. And I love Chicago. I love where I'm from. But if I had to go somewhere and stay there for the rest of my life, I would I'd go to Santa Monica. I think if I'd been uh, in isolation in a 100-year-old drafty house in Chicago, the sunshine of Santa Monica might also have <laughs> a draw for me as well. <laughs> there you go. So um, sadly, we've come to the end of our main podcast, but um, as I mentioned in the intro, we have now started a Patreon. So we're going to continue our chat over on there for a little while longer. But for those who are not subscribed to Patreon, patreon.com forward slash the boy who bakes, um, where can people follow you? On Instagram, Shauna Seaver. I love Instagram. I think you're very good at Instagram and also you always post the most delicious looking thing. So I would agree you should all go and follow. And Shauna's latest book is Midwest Made. It is a book about baking from the Midwest region. And I've told you this before. I think it was one of my favorite books of last year. I think it is a wonderful baking book. So people should go and buy that as well. Thank you, Ed. That means a lot coming from you. I really appreciate that. My pleasure. Hey guys, so that was our first episode back after my very long, very unexpected hiatus. I hope you enjoyed it very much. Um, you can subscribe to the podcast over on Apple Podcasts or on Stitcher. Also, if you want to leave a review, I'd appreciate that massively as it really helps uh, more people to discover the podcast. As I mentioned up top, there is also a bonus section of this interview over on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash the boy who bakes, along with lots of bonus delicious recipes that are exclusive to the Patreon. I'll be back with new episodes, hopefully every week, and maybe every other week. We will see in the coming days. But thank you for listening, and I will see you next time.